God chose the lover when I went bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose the lover when I went bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose the lover. Chose the lover. God chose the lover. Chose the lover. God chose the lover. Boom, five, eight. God chose the lover when I went bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose the lover when I went bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose the lover. Chose the lover. God chose the lover. Chose the lover. God chose the lover. Boom, five, eight. Go to 1 John chapter 3 with me. Get this going. <clears throat> it was a good weekend. I'm rested up. I'm ready to go. And I'm ready to share the truth. This is a cool passage. Um, I think you're going to see a lot that you didn't see prior. I hope so. That's my prayer. Lord, I pray that you bless your word, strengthen your people, build your church, make this time effective and, and fruitful. Uh, we give this whole time to you. Uh, we're here for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, we're in First John chapter 3. And then the last time we talked, we talked about how I believe, biblically, um, that those who have the seed of God abiding in them are, are kept from the possibility of living a life of practicing sin. In other words, God has wired within the new created life. He's wired within that framework this sin preventative where you and I will not live in an, a, a habitual way of, of sinning, a practice of sinning. Um, it's not, I don't believe it's compatible with the new nature. I don't believe it's possible. Um, we talked about that and, and then in verse 10 I said, by, by this it is evident who are the children of God. And I wanted to emphasize the fact that John is slowly transitioning into love. And so he's, he's addressed, hey, if you're of the devil, then your life will be wrapped up in sin. It will be marked by sin as the majority of your lifestyle. You'll live in a habitual way of life that's dominated by sin. No conviction, no change in desires, uh, no sensitivity to the spirit. None of that will be present. If you're of God, you will not make a practice of sinning. It's not possible uh, for the new nature, for the new created self we're given and the new heart and the new mind and, and all the unique gifts and defense mechanisms God puts in place to keep us from falling into a life of sin. It, that won't be possible for the believer. So you can tell who's of the devil, who's of God based on the trajectory of their overall life, based on the majority of their lifestyle. And, and you and I don't have um, the ability to even to look at that. We can look at the fruit of a person's life. Uh, but we're looking at the season. We're looking at a moment. We're not looking at the entirety of their life and how it's going to play out. And so there's a lot that just goes into that conversation that I'm intentionally avoiding because I want to get to the love part. Okay. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness 
is not of God. And when we use the terminology of God, what we're saying is you belong to him. Your nature is of him. Your life is sourced in him. And so because of that, because you're in him and he's in you, and through the grace of God, you're a child of God, because of that, your lifestyle will prove that you're of him, that you're sourced in him, that your, your citizenship is in heaven, that you carry the nature and the name of your father. Okay? And if you don't see that evidence of righteousness... Uh, over time and the long-term majority of your life is sin and darkness and wickedness, then you might be of the devil. And John is going to say, look, let's just, let's just make it very clear. Here's the, the dividing line I'm talking about. Here's how we know who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever doesn't practice righteousness is not of God. doesn't matter what they think. doesn't matter what they confess. doesn't matter what they think they believe or what they can even articulate to you about God. If their life is not in uh, in alignment with the word of God and the character of God, which isn't to say they're perfectly living holy and they're you know there's there's perfect consistency, but the overall life of of the person is not in righteousness. They're probably not of God. This is John talking, not me. Nor is the one who doesn't love his brother. So when John says practicing righteousness, he does have in mind the laws of God. He does have in mind obedience and walking in step with the Spirit. He does have in mind with my heart beats for the things of God. But to, to be more specific, he means loving brother, loving sister, loving fellow human made in the image of God. Because that is always going to be in alignment with the laws of God. In other words, the, the commandments of God, whichever ones you choose, are going to lead us into the fullest life, not just for ourselves, but the fullest life and life of love for others. And so I am most loving for, towards people when I am most submitted to the laws of God. The ways of God map out what real love looks like. And so then Jesus comes on the scene and we now we have love with arms and legs and we see Torah, you know, personified in front of us. Torah being, you know, the laws of God. Um, and so verse 11 says, this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. And he transitions. Remember, he's going from, hey, if you're living in sin, you probably don't know God. To, and if, if you don't see love in your life, you probably don't know him either. Because this is the message you've heard from the beginning. That we should love one another. And you go, what do you mean? This is the commandment you've heard from the beginning. This is what Jesus says in the upper room to the disciples. And just to... Um, just to like drive this home, love is what God cares so deeply about. But we can't just run around defining love however we want. We can't just run around going, hey culture, what do you say love is? We have to let God define love for us. And it will always be consistent with the truth. If you are operating or living in a way that is opposed to the truth of God, you're not operating in love. Because love and truth are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. Truth provides the framework for how I love people. Truth, the truth of God's words and his commands and his character revealed in his word, that gives me a clear direction and picture of what it looks like to love. How do I love? Well, the instruction is found in the truth of God. That's how we define love. And so Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. And he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. 
my disciples. I love the possessive nature of Jesus' love, how he so deeply loves his people that he says, I want you to go and represent me and to show the world the love I have for them and you so that they look at you and go, hmm, you must belong to Jesus. You must be a disciple or a follower of Jesus because we see the love you have. And it's not just a generic kind of general blanket statement of love. He says, if you have love for one another. So remember, Jesus is talking to the disciples in the upper room and he's telling each of them, if you guys love each other the way that I have loved you, laying my life down self-sacrificially and giving myself up for you, if you guys function in that capacity towards each other, the world is going to look on and say, they must be disciples, true followers of Jesus. Whether the world hates it, acknowledges it, wants to admit it or not, there will be some kind of cognitive recognition that those people belong to the God of the Bible. Whether I believe he's real or not, those people for sure must come from that sect of, you know, they believe in the Bible and they follow the God of Israel and they believe in this Jesus as the Messiah because look at the love they have for each other. It's unique from the love the world has for itself. And Jesus will say this in, in the Sermon on the Mount, I believe, or somewhere in the, in the Gospels that say, look, if you love people who love you, that's great. Even the Gentile pagans do that. Like, it's not, you're not really much different or much better than them. Not that I'm trying to be better than an unbeliever, but... If your love doesn't look any different than theirs, then what will they be drawn to when you share the gospel? And so the truth that I preach should be reinforced by the love that I have. It should be. The truth that I preach should be reinforced by the love or the presence of God's love in my life for people around me. And so John is bringing us back to the basics. He's going, here's the very simple message, the sum of the law and the prophets, who God is is that he is love and he desires love for his people from the very beginning it's been god loves that's why he creates creation is the overflow of his love and we get to enjoy that loving relationship we get to enjoy the glory um, of god so we should love one another right we should love one another now we should not be like cain what's interesting here is John is not contrasting necessarily Cain and Abel. If you know the story of Cain and Abel, you have Cain and Abel, two brothers that descend from Adam and Eve. This story comes right after the fall. Adam and Eve sin, they're kicked out of the garden, they're in exile, we don't know how close they are to the outskirts of the garden. They seem to be at least fairly close to the at least border of the garden, but they can't go in anymore. Right? That's been blocked off by a flaming sword, like you see on a Saturday night. And so they can't go in the garden anymore. They have, um, they have Cain and Abel, as their two children, Cain and Abel one day bring offerings to God. And God has regard for Abel's offering. He, Abel brings the first of his livestock. Uh, Cain brings just, it seems like a basket of fruit from his, from because he's a worker of the ground. It seems like he just brings a basket of fruit from his harvest. Okay, God has no regard for Cain's offering, that the, the, the fruit of his ground. He doesn't, God doesn't regard that. It doesn't mean God hates Cain or God's mad at Cain or God's even like despising Cain. He just has no regard for the offering he brings. Now, Abel, on the other hand, God does have regard for. Cain sees that, he gets jealous, and that jealousy breeds hatred. That jealousy breeds a murderous intent in Cain. And so God approaches Cain and goes, Cain, you got a choice here, buddy. 
you can let sin master you because its desire is to control you and to have you like for dinner or you can master sin Cain chooses to let sin master him and he ends up killing Abel because of jealousy and hatred now John's about to use that story to communicate the fact that when we operate in love expect a lot of pushback expect a lot of opposition expect a lot of people to just have a, a deep resentment for the love that you have so I know that's hard to hear when you're like I thought if I follow Jesus in love it life will be easy well life will be better but it ain't gonna be easier because now you have more enemies against you now the devil has he's out to get you now his minions and the spirit of however you make sense of the kingdom of darkness and that hierarchy they're out to get you and now your own flesh is against you because you have desires that are contrary to the flesh and now you have a, a whole world system opposed to God and because you represent God and because you are from him they're against you and so you when you sign up to follow Jesus you're signing up for warfare whether you like it or not even if you operate in love that's gonna aggravate people Abel didn't do anything to Cain Abel did not do anything directly to his brother Cain just looked at, and we're going to see this in a second, Cain just looked at the deeds of his brother and said, that really makes me mad. Like, I just want to kill Abel now. It's the same with Jesus. This repeating theme of one who is of the serpent versus one who is of God, right? One is of hatred, one is of love, and the light and the darkness are in opposition, and the darkness tries to snuff out the light. That's a repeating theme in Scripture. So we have Cain and Abel. Cain takes out Abel, right? We have later down the line, we see um, uh, Noah and all those people who are of the serpent. And they, you know, they've taken on the ways of darkness. We, have, we see that with um, uh, Esau and Jacob. Esau tries to kill Jacob. We see that with um, Israel and the surrounding nations. We see this with David and his older brothers. Um, or Saul, who ends up being the representation of the older brother figure. Right, we see this with I'm just off the top of my head. I'm thinking through this. Um, Joseph and his brothers, right? Jealousy, breeding hatred and murderous intent, and ultimately it culminates in Jesus, who is the ultimate source and personification of love. Comes down into a world that doesn't want him, and the world doesn't want Jesus so much that they actually conspire to kill him. And Jesus does nothing against the world at large except to die and lay his life down for their salvation and the world hates that and so now John is about to kind of contrast Cain and Jesus not necessarily Cain and Abel Hebrews does that but here we see Cain he represents murderous intent he's of the evil one he's the seed of the serpent but then you have Jesus the ultimate example of love the one who is well, the seed of the woman that's promised in Genesis 3. And so verse 12 says, we should not be like Cain. This is a very interesting transition. I mean, think about it. He's going, hey, remember Jesus told us to love one another. Don't be like Cain. And you're like, whoa, tell me why. Well, he was of the evil one. Remember how he's already said we are of God or we are not of God, right? We're either of God or we are of the devil. That's speaking to nature and source. Who do you descend from in a spiritual sense? 
meaning whose ways do you imitate? Whose ways do you embody as if to say, that is my father who I'm looking to? And Jesus does tell the religious leaders, your father's the devil. Go try that today. <laughs> End up in prison. So you can be of the devil or you can be of God. And here, John says, yeah, Cain was of the evil one or of the devil. And he murdered his brother. That's, that's one of the telling signs. Cain did not belong to or know God as his father. Instead, Cain embodies the ways of the serpent of darkness and sin. Because John 10.10 10 tells us the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. No matter how you make sense of it. Is that talking about the devil? The point is, darkness and those who are of the darkness will walk in that way. Stealing, killing, destroying themselves, other people. Uh, intentionally, unintentionally, right? Whatever it may be, their life will be marked by this destructive nature that is in opposition to God and his people. And, and again, that's going to vary in degree with each person. And then John goes, hey, why did Cain murder Abel, right? Why did Cain murder his brother Abel? And you go, honestly, I have no idea. There was no reason. Well, because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. This is before Cain even murdered Abel. So he's not talking about the murder as, well, murder is evil, but he's not referring to that action. John is looking back at Cain's and, and Abel's story and going, there were some deeds Cain was engaging in that were evil. And then he looked at Abel and said, those are righteous actions. And then that bred jealousy and anger and hatred in his heart that resulted in murder. That resulted in murder. And so Abel did nothing against his brother Cain. But here's what you have to understand. Just Abel living righteous triggered Cain, made him mad enough to murder his brother. That's why Paul will write to Timothy in either 1st or 2nd Timothy. And he'll say, look, everyone who desires to live a life of godliness will be persecuted. You can be minding your own business, just walking in the light, having fellowship with God, loving people, serving the church, giving your life up, and you will attract people who you've never met, who you have had zero interactions with. You've never had a personal conversation with these people, and they'll come at you like you've been their lifelong enemy. And you wonder why, why are they so hostile towards me? It ain't about you. It's about the God that you represent, who they are strongly opposed to. And because your ways remind them of the God that they hate and are against, that triggers them, whether they have the language for it or not. And so Cain, because his deeds were evil, which you might say, oh, dang, was the action of bringing fruit from the ground to God as an offering, was is that the action John is calling an evil deed? We don't know. We don't know. Hebrews tells us that Cain didn't bring an offering in faith. Abel did. And God had regard for Abel, not Cain. There's a lot of, like, I don't know, subtle hinting at what possibly is going on in the story of Cain and Abel. Right? They give us, the biblical authors give us just enough to speculate and have a, a small idea, but not enough to really know for sure. Why did God not regard Cain? Well, 
Apparently his deeds were evil prior to his murder. So don't, don't be surprised that the world hates you. That is one of the hardest scriptures to come to terms with. That is one of the hardest passages in the scriptures to come to terms with. Don't be surprised that when you do everything God tells you to, and you're obedient, and you walk in faith, and you love people faithfully, and you lay your life down, don't be surprised that the world will hate you and you will actually attract persecution by minding your own dang business and walking in the light. Because the light of your life triggers people who are in the darkness. It does. Either you will trigger them in a convicting good way where they're drawn to Jesus, or your life of holiness, I'm not saying we're perfect, but when we represent God, that will trigger them either to want Jesus or to be hostile towards us because we represent him. The question then becomes, is that okay for you? Like, is he still worth it? Is Jesus still worth following? Even when all the while you're just doing what God says and more people are coming against you. And you got more hatred in the comments and you got more hate mail and you got more death threats and you got more people leaving you and backstabbing you. What, what do you do? Well, I think Jesus would remind us because he tells his disciples, look, if the world hates you, that's a strong word, huh? If the world hates you, it doesn't mean like if the world just doesn't prefer you, if the world is just like, nah, let them have their thing, leave them alone. This is the world actually coming against you because they hate the very fiber of your being, whether they admit it or not, it, they're against the God you serve, which th that might be, I've met people who will be honest and go, look, I just hate you because I hate your God. <laughs> so get out of my face. And I'm like, okay, we're cool. And then I've met people who like, they are completely blind to the fact that they truly, it's not even that they just don't prefer God. It's that they're strongly against and they don't even understand that. So when they look at me, they're like, I don't know why, but I want to stab you. And you're like, I will leave. I don't want to be here anymore. Oh, you can have it. Enjoy your day. You know, I do not want to be stabbed today. So Jesus says, if the world hates you, know this. It hated me before it hated you. Therein lies the main reason why the people of God all across the planet, I'm not saying... We're marginalized and everyone's against us, but the world at large that is opposed to God, both the system and the people, can agree on one thing. We don't want God. And by, you know, because of that, we don't want their God's people. Um, and again, you can be like, well, I'm an atheist and I'm neutral. Or I'm an atheist and I'm like, uh, I don't know, I'm indifferent. I, I couldn't care less what a Christian does. Just don't step into my personal bubble, you know. But at the end of the day, um, that opposition to God will slowly begin to eventually manifest in a way towards God's people um, that is very evident where they're like, yeah, we, we know you definitely don't want God because you're coming so strongly against us. And again, this isn't to like victimize Christians. They're real people who really love Jesus, who are suffering in immense ways. 
and who are being tortured and, and persecuted and hated and living underground in, in ways and lifestyles that you and I can't fathom. And so the world will come against believers and God in varying degrees. It can look like indifference. It can look like being neutral. It can look like just don't step in my personal bubble. Have a good time. I'm all down for your morals. Just don't come in my life. It's going to look different. So I'm not trying to make this a one-dimensional thing where it's like, it'll always look like you getting stabbed. Not necessarily. John 17, 14, Jesus in the high priestly prayer says, Look, Father, I've given them your word. And the world has hated them. Why? Because they're not of the world. Just as I'm not of the world. So even in the high priestly prayer, and we could read through this whole prayer for like two hours. Jesus, in his prayer, admits those who belong to God are not of this, don't belong to this world system. We're not citizens of a higher kingdom. That's beautiful. We belong to God. We belong to his kingdom and his family. We carry his, uh, his name, right? We have a new nature in Christ. And so there's a sense in which... Uh, well, obviously, Scripture speaks to the fact that as children of God, we're covered in the righteousness and perfection of Jesus, right? So that when the Father looks at us, He sees the righteous perfection of His Son. So we are no longer of the world. This is not our home. So the people who are of the world, who do walk in alignment with the devil and his ways and are against God and his, that world system will not be compatible with us. Something's going to have to give. When you live holy, and you live the way God asks us to, you are actually going against the grains of culture. Like the very, the very life God has in mind for you and me, is that we would not just stand out and look different. It's that we would, not violently or aggressively, but that we would go against the grains of culture everything we do it doesn't mean there's nothing about culture that you can adapt or redeem or use for God's glory and everything about this world's evil know what I'm saying okay that's the Gnostic lie we're trying to avoid but I am saying that the lifestyle God has called us to is going to be upstream you're swimming against the crowds and that is going to make people mad just just be ready for that just like Abel did nothing against Cain he was just I mean, honestly, it's the, the text seems to indicate and Genesis 4 and, and Hebrews talks about Abel as just, just loving God, man. Just bringing an offering and be like, I so love you. And Cain's like, I hate you. And Abel's like, I didn't do anything to you, man. Leave me alone. Cain kills him. That's a picture of what it looks like to live in a world that is run by the spirit of Antichrist, the spirit of the enemy. It's murderous, it's jealous, it's envious, it's full of hatred and strife. Um, it causes destruction, all that kind of stuff. Don't be surprised the world hates you. I know like some of you are going to have to sleep on this for a few weeks and really process this. And this is going to take some deep heart level surgery for God to do in you. But we do need to come to terms with this. Don't be surprised. Don't don't be like, what did I do wrong? People are leaving me. What did I? Sometimes we are the problem, and it's like, well, you were dumb, Tommy. Like you were just a jerk there. 
But when you're actually following Jesus and then you look around and you see lots of people coming against you. Yes, you have a church that backs you. Yes, you have people that support you and encourage you and you have a family. But there are haters. And it's not you. You're not the focus. It's the God you serve. And since you represent him, don't be surprised. Like, don't look around and go, God, what did I do wrong? I'm following and he's going, you're doing everything right. That's just the world you live in doesn't like you following my ways. Don't be surprised. The world, not even if, that the world hates you. Like when it happens. When it happens. And some of you experience this with your spouse. Some of you experience this with your closest family members. Your best friend you've had since kindergarten. Uh, some of you experience this with coworkers. It's going to happen. Now, I'm just trying to prepare you. And I'm not going to dance around the topic and be like, you know what, let's, uh, let's dance around the bush and talk about how good Jesus is. He's so good. He's so good we can endure the hatred of the world. And if he's not that good to you, rethink what you think the gospel is. Really come to God and say, show me how good you are so that I'm, I have the fortitude to face the opposition the world brings. Because you're going to need it. You're going to need something. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Now notice how John shifts. Look, Cain was of the devil. The world's going to be, a, you know, imitating that same way and of hatred and jealousy and murder. But we, we've passed out of death into life. How do we know that? Well, because we love the brothers. Love for John, like the unique self-sacrificial love that God has for us. When we see that in our life, when we see ourselves participating in that kind of love for other people, John wants you to know that is the strongest evidence that you really belong to God. He, he literally says, um, by this, it is evident who are the children of God. Whoever practices righteousness is of God. Whoever doesn't is not of God. And the righteousness he has in mind is the loving of other people. In other words, for John, if there is a hierarchy of evidence, what is most convincing, okay, and what should be the, the greatest mark of a believer is that we love each other. That doesn't mean we neglect the world. But I think most of Christianity has it a little backwards. We sh let, me, let me preface this. We should love the unbeliever. We should long for the unbeliever to know Christ. We should cry and weep over people that don't know love and don't know life and don't know God. It should bother us and we should take action and we should do what we can to reach them, but never to the neglect of the people of God. We, we as the church have done a poor job of balancing evangelism and discipleship. And you have on one side of the spectrum, you have churches that are so self-absorbed and so about their people and they coddle and they comfort and it's all about the convenience and the consumer. And it's like, let's just make sure we don't have anyone leave that they actually neglect caring for and evangelizing to the unbeliever. And it's not even on their radar. They're obsessed with not losing members. They're obsessed with not having their tithe go down. They're obsessed with not having people get frustrated and they coddle and, and there's a concern we should have for the church. I should love my brothers and sisters. I should build up the family of God. I should invest and serve 
and love the people of God and lay my life down. Okay, I should do that. But it should not be to the neglect of the unbelievers. The reverse is also true. I should not be so goal-oriented and numbers-oriented where every week I'm going, how many people got saved? How many people got baptized? How many people put their hand up? And I ignore the people God has entrusted to me to care for and love. And you're going, well, I'm not a shepherd, so God hasn't entrusted me anyone. But are you crazy? You're a part of the church. You actually have a responsibility to love and serve and care for the church just as much as we do. Even if you don't have a shepherd label, even if you're not a pastor by position, you are called to build up the church just as much. You don't need some label or some title. You don't need some certificate. We're all called to love and serve the church. But when you're like, let's just get more people in the seats. Let's focus so much on outreach and evangelism and let's make sure it looks so good. And Nancy, I know you have problems, but not, not right now, buddy. We have, we have too many people we're trying to reach. You go bring your problems to some other church. And when you, when you, when you are so concerned with evangelism and outreach and everything you do becomes this consumer based, like, how do we make them like us? How do we draw them in? Inevitably, what is going to happen is you will neglect the people God has called you to care for and tend to and shepherd. And Nancy was bringing you her problem, not in an aggressive, offensive way, but in a way where God called you to actually be a part of the solution. You were too busy looking at the unbelieving world and making sure the systems are in place and the stage looks nice and there's a place for that. But to the neglect of God's people, never. Never. So how do we balance this loving brothers and sisters? And by the way, the word brother there, brethren, refers to the believers. It doesn't mean we don't love the unbelieving world. But it seems like biblically, if you go read every passage about love, there is the love for the foreigner. There's the love for the stranger and the sojourner and and the Gentile and the unbeliever for sure. But the bulk of of the New Testament commandment to love in a, in a new covenant context, when it comes to the Iglesia and the church, okay, it's mostly the majority of those scriptures are going to be love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And then you go, I, there's too many people in my life who don't know Jesus. I don't have time to like tend to them. They already know Christ. Like Isn't that like obsessing over the 99 and neglecting the one? No, go after the one. Go after the others that don't know Christ. But love and serve those who already do and disciple them so that you have more people who are equipped and built up to go and reach more people. If it was just up to you to evangelize, what's more effective? Like you or you alongside 10 other faithful believers who have been shepherded and cared for and equipped and and they're solid in the word and you've invested in them and now there's 11 of you that can reach out into the community and you can come together and develop systems develop outreach events develop ways in which you can reach out into the world without neglecting the church john doesn't mention the unbelieving world here and i'm not making any statement about it i'm just telling you he doesn't Which doesn't mean we don't love the unbelieving world, but the priority of Jesus and the priority of God. Yes, they seek the the one and they leave the 99. Yes, God is all about caring for the orphan and the stranger and, and those who are not a part of the fold. Jesus talks a lot about that. 
But look at what John says. You and I can know we've passed out of death, which is a an actual like condition. You're either in death or you're in life. Those are the two states of being. You're either of the devil or you're of God. You're either in death or you're in life. There's no in between. How do you know you've actually come into eternal life? How do you know you've come to know the living God? How can you be sure? John wants you to know we can know we've come into life when we see love for the brothers or sisters or the church. So, yes, there is a job for each of us. Every one of us has a gift to bring to the table that's going to benefit the rest of God's people. All of us is called to serve to a degree in some capacity and love those who are in our sphere of influence, right? And lay our life down for them, whatever that looks like. And that doesn't mean we are neglecting the unbelieving world. It's not what it means. It means the priority is love and serve the people of God so that when you do reach unbelievers and you bring them into the fold, they actually see love. Or so that more people are being built up and trained and equipped to go and love the lost too. There's a way to balance it. And I don't think anyone has perfectly figured it out. How do we do this? I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just trying to give you some general guidelines. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Remember, Cain hated his brother. Cain hated his brother. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So think about that. If there's no love in your life for the people of God, you don't see evidence of that. There's no, I'm talking like throughout your life, there's no long-term evidence at all. Then you have to come to grips with the fact that maybe if there's no concern for the people of God, no love, no desire to lay your life down, no, um, your heart doesn't at all resonate with them in any capacity, maybe John wants you to know that you possibly don't have eternal life abiding in you. Because for John, one of the greatest evidences and signs he will use for you to go, how do I know I'm a believer? He will use love. I go, well, do you see love in your life? For the people of God specifically, not only, but specifically. And I know we've been trained in certain church contexts. We have been trained to hyper-emphasize and hyper-focus on the lost. And so when I tell you that scripture seems to kind of flip that on its head, and it's not don't love the lost, but the priority in the hierarchy of love is to uh, focus on the church and then go out and love the lost as you love the church. In other words, I think here's, here's how the West views evangelism. Hey, let's all go out and reach the lost. And while we're doing that, we're loving each other. Okay. I think the biblical view is, hey, let's love each other. And as we are, let's reach out into the world and grab the lost and bring them into a loving fold. Love for brother or sister in Christ then becomes the focus. 
And then the byproduct of that is that we actually reach the lost and we love them and we care for them. But if I neglect the people in my community and I'm reaching the lost and I bring them in here, they're just going to be, once they come to Christ and they believe, they're just going to be another number that I neglect because I'm too busy looking at the lost and neglecting those who need to be discipled. So how do you balance discipleship and evangelism? I don't, I don't claim to know the answer. I'm just saying that I think our priorities are a bit off. Value and serve the church and the people of God. Don't coddle them. Don't be obsessed with convenience. Don't like entertain the consumer mentality. That's like, I'm just trying to keep everyone happy. Preacher, that's not your job. Your job is to help people know Jesus better and to promote a loving community and to serve and lay your life down. And as you do, you're looking for opportunities to reach into the lost world and bring them into the fold. That seems to be the the model of biblical love. Is that, I mean, to be honest, think about the actual practical outworking of love. Can you equally love all people with the same tenacity and investment. In other words, can you be equally invested into every single person that's in your life? No. There's going to be uh, concentric circles, you might say. It's going to start with, hey, I, I can really invest into certain people in my life that I'm discipling and mentoring and trying to raise up to go and love and serve others, right? And then you spread the circle out a little more. And now you go, okay, now I can love um, uh, other people, you know, who are outside of that close-knit circle. I can love other people, right, and serve them, but not to the same, I'm not invested in them as much as I am in this smaller core group. And so it starts to spread out. And then you look at the lost world and go, I love and care for and concern for the lost world. And I preach the gospel and we're trying to do events that really reach into our community, but I'm not able to invest as much into that. So it's not that one is more important than the other per se. It's that just practically the way that I can love and have been equipped to love people is that just like Jesus modeled for us, there's going to be um, a breakdown of relationships. Not in like a negative way, but when you look at the way Jesus had relationships, who was one of the main guys he focused on? Peter. And then who were the main three he brought into like certain situations and really cared for and loved them, not to the neglect of the other disciples, right? But really invested in them, Peter, James, and John. And then he had his what? His 12. So within the 12, there were three he really focused on. Within the three, there was one guy who was really, really, really pouring into and really trying to get his attention. He was a knucklehead. And then outside the 12, you have the crowds, and in the crowds, there are those who claim to be disciples. There are those who don't claim to be disciples. There's those who are just spectating, right? Just, and just looking around going, I don't know. This is Jesus, guy really worth following. And so you have these outer circles that form. Did Jesus invest as much time into the crowds as he did into just Peter, James, and John? It doesn't seem like it. He was about the crowds and reaching the lost and coming to his own sheep. He was about bringing the lost sheep of, of Israel back to God for sure. But even Jesus models for us, I think what it looks like to effectively distribute the limited 
amount of love and investment and time and energy that I have as a human. There's a limited amount of time I have. And I know this isn't necessarily where the text is going. This is just where I think I need to focus on just for a minute a little more. It's just that we have this unrealistic view of evangelism and discipleship. And we either overestimate what we can do, right? Or we underestimate what God can do. And both need to be avoided. And so I'm just trying to help you understand. Just prioritize what God prioritizes and, and value what He values. Do what Jesus did when it came to relationships. He did reach the lost. And He did that most effectively by laying His life down and by investing into the twelve and then more into the three and then even more into like knucklehead Peter. And so that's, that's what I mean when I say don't neglect the lost, but don't be all about coddling and, and being obsessed with the convenience and, and consumer mentality of your, of your inner circle. That's garbage. <laughs> Love them so they can reach more people with you. I just think uh, every church I've been in will hyper-focus on one to the neglect of the other. And it's like, bro, you guys have 19 Bible studies a week. Who are we reaching in the community? What are we doing to like actually make the name of Jesus known and reach people in darkness? What are we doing? And then you have other churches who are just like every event is so centered on the unbeliever that every event is just this worldly parade of almost you're compromising values in the process. And no one's being trained up in the church. No one's being discipled or equipped. There's, there's none of that deep Bible study. And so there's a way to balance it. And I'm not saying I've mastered it. I have no idea. Okay. I'm just voicing some genuine concerns. But the point is, if you don't love, and this love is not like a moment. This, if we're going to be consistent with the rest of the chapter, is referring to lifestyle. Because he's talked about whoever makes a practice of sinning. Whoever makes a practice of, of, of practicing righteousness. So it's going to follow that the kind of love John has in mind is the majority of one's life. Is it wrapped up in love? Or is the most of their life wrapped up in hatred, jealousy, envy, uh, murderous intent and there's no love for real like godly love for people you know and that's going to be very r revealing okay about whether or not they really know the God of Israel whoever doesn't love abides in death everyone who hates his brother is a murderer that statement in and of itself is quite the can of worms isn't it Matthew 5:21, Jesus says look you've heard don't murder you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. This is Matthew 5, 21. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of... Hell of fire? Hell of fire. That's not what it said, is it? Yeah, the hell of fire. You guys probably think I'm cussing. I'm not. So the point is, okay. Jesus seems to be deeply concerned for the world at large. Enough to lay his life down. He does tell Peter and the rest of his disciples, look, faithfulness is feeding my sheep. Faithfulness and honoring the name of Jesus is going to look like investing into the sheep and feeding the sheep. That's what Jesus models. 
That's what Jesus tells Peter. It's what a faithful servant will do while he's waiting for the master to come. In other words, here's the modern translation. While we're waiting for Jesus to come, the best thing we can do is to feed the sheep, to train up the sheep, to love the sheep. And I'm a sheep, you're a sheep. To love each other, build each other up. And as we do, you see what happens in the day of Pentecost. Guess what Peter did not intend to do? Peter didn't plan to preach a sermon and bring 3,000 into the kingdom that day. Not that Peter did it, but God did. Okay, Peter didn't wake up that morning and be like, Yes, all my sermon prep is about to finally reach its purpose. That's not what Peter did. You know what Peter did do? He met with the disciples. They prayed in the upper rooms, about 120 of them. And they're just seeking God. Jesus did say to wait. Wait in Jerusalem. So Peter's doing that. He's loving the people of God that Jesus entrusted to him. He's loving the disciples. He's loving those who were coming in and were followers of Jesus. And he's te they're teaching. They're helping them. They're praying together. Then boom, Spirit of God comes. Day of Pentecost, tongues of fire. Right? Normal church service. Peter gets up and goes, look at this opportunity. I should preach the gospel to these lost people. Look at these crowds that are forming. Do you see what I mean? Like evangelism and reaching the lost seems to be the byproduct of faithfully loving the people of God. In other words, when you're actually loving and building the church well, God will bring the right opportunities to your doorstep to reach the lost. And we overcomplicate it and we get obsessed with systems. And I'm not saying there's no planning. I'm not saying there's no strategy. But when you are only about strategy and methods and what, is the, what are the metrics, how are the stats this week, you lose sight of what God really cares about, his people. He cares about the people that he's already brought into his fold, that we're called to disciple and train up and love. And as we do, the byproduct will be that, hey, God brings opportunities to reach the lost. He does. And every time you see anyone in scripture in the book of Acts reaching the lost Paul will go into the synagogue talk to the people of Israel those who are actually Jews by descent and then oh these guys don't want it go to the Gentiles right there, there's a there's a method to the madness and it seems like the, as people of God we should love each other it's all I'm saying it's all I'm saying is love each other make that a priority you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him this is interesting very interesting. Very interesting. John, up to this point, okay, up to this point, has spoken of several things abiding in a believer. Okay? Here he says, look, if there's, if you're a murderer, and that's like your life, <laughs> it's just murderous intent in your heart. Maybe you don't actually physically murder someone, but in your heart, just constant jealousy and envy and murder and hatred and bitterness and never love for people. You might not have eternal life abiding in you. If I take you to 1 John 2.14. John says, look, I write to you, young men, because you're strong. And the word of God abides in you. And you've overcome the evil one. So what is it that abides in a believer? Well, the word of God. And you go, that's Jesus. Yeah, sure. But that happens by your reception of the gospel. So 
the message of Jesus is the word of God we communicate that brings salvation. And because that message uh, is centered around Jesus and is uh, has substance because of Jesus, well, there's the salvation power of that word of God to bring people into life. So, as people of God, we have the word of God dwelling in us, which you can say is the gospel and Jesus. First John 2.24, John says, let, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. He's going to say a similar thing in verse 27. The anointing you received from him, from God, abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. So, so far, we have the word of God, what we heard from the beginning, abiding in us. As the people of God. We have the anointing abiding in us. Okay? You go down to chapter 3, verse 9. And he says... No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? Well, God's seed abides in him. So now we have God's seed abiding in him. You should think, uh, just think a plant. A plant is going to produce the kind of seed that's consistent with its nature. So when an apple falls into the ground, the seed of that apple, when that seed is planted in the ground, will produce more apples. So I think no matter what, when you hear seed here, just think, God reproducing after his own kind of sorts. Like reproducing those who are his own children. The children of God. Spiritual life. We are children of God. Produced by God. Coming from him. He's our father. However you make sense of that. And then if you go down to verse 24. Which we'll get to the end. Um, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. And God in him. By this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. That's really cool. So I'm just trying to show you that um, when John speaks, it seems as though, and I want to be careful how I say this, it seems as though every time John talks about something abiding in a believer, like in, in 1 John, it seems like he's talking about the same thing. If he says the word of God, well, we know Jesus is the word of God. And we know the gospel brings salvation because it's about Jesus. And then he says in chapter 2, let what you heard or the anointing you received abides in you. The the anointing seems to refer to the spirit. Um, Chapter 3, verse 9, no one born of God keeps on sinning. God's seed abides in him. Verse 24, God abides in that person by, by the spirit. So no matter what, if you're going... What is it that abides in a Christian? Is it, is it God? Is it his word? Is it his anointing? Is it his spirit? I would go all of the above, my friend. All of the above. You don't have to pick. The point is, someone who lives a life that is consistent with the ways of the devil and the world, that person doesn't have those things abiding in them. What? Life. Eternal life. Which John 17, 3 will tell us, this is eternal life, that you would know the Father and know the Son. So eternal life is more about who you know, not about having some something. Like eternal life is a person. That's what the last chapter of this letter will say. Jesus is the eternal life. And so if you have eternal life abiding in you, if you have the word of God abiding in you, if you have the anointing or the seed of God, it seems as though he's, number one, talking about Jesus by the Spirit of God, and therefore the presence of God within you. Father, Son, Spirit. It's like John 13, 14, and 15, all wrapped up 
in this letter. John's just repeating what he told, uh, what Jesus told him in the upper room. It's really cool. Um, so by this we know love. And I really want you to pay attention here. This is where it's like, whoa, 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 hold on. Back it up. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. I really want you to try and figure out what he's saying. It's crazy. In verse 15, like if we're just going to use the rules of grammar, if John is going to say he, right, then he must be talking about someone he's already brought up in the previous verse. Because up to this point, he uses no personal pronouns. Like, by this we know love. But here, we have a he. There's a person involved. Okay, you can go back to verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So, John can't be talking about the murderer laying down his life. Right? Because John's going, here's how you know love. He laid down his life. Who laid down his life? Who did? You'd go, Jesus? Duh. My four-year-old knows that, right? And I'd go, sure. But Jesus isn't present in this text explicitly. John doesn't bring up Jesus. What he does bring up, at least in the previous verse, is eternal life. And in this verse, he brings up love. He assigns a personal pronoun to the concept of love. So that now love is no longer a concept, but a person. In other words, John is saying, hey, love is a person. Love is someone we can know. Love is someone that we can partner with and intimately, familiarly, like, walk alongside. So is eternal life. There's a reason that in this letter, God is light, God is love, um, God is referred to as He is eternal life. Um, and there's one more thing that escapes my mind. But the point is that you would see the connection between eternal life and love. There's not only a connection between having life and then having love for people, which we talk about hours about that. There's also a connection between this, that Jesus is eternal life, 1 John chapter 5, and that God is love. So John is combining those two ideas and saying eternal life and love are a person, you know him by the name of Jesus. God. God is eternal life and love. And when you have life, because you've trusted in the love of God for you, you will have love for people, specifically, and mainly, the brothers and sisters in your life, whom God has called you to care for, and build up, and serve, and even shepherd. So, look, if you have eternal life, you will know love. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. Who laid down his life? Jesus. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So remember how I said John is more concerned, most concerned with, most concerned with, loving fellow believers. I know that's going to like, that's shattering a few categories for you. I know some of you are really pushing back against that. Because you've been, you've been taught for so many years. That Jesus saved us to go and love the lost mainly. And then as we have time in between our outreach sessions, we can love the people of God with whatever we have left. That doesn't seem to be the, 
the biblical portrayal of loving people. I love God first because he first loved me, right? He is love. He initiated love in my life. Now I go and love specifically the people whom God has called his children. And I love them ferociously and serve them and lay my life down just as Jesus did. And as I do, I'm loving the lost. So let me take you to, first, to John chapter 13. Because we can look at the cross. And I think we should. I think we should look at the cross and go, yeah, he really did love us. He laid down his life. No one took his life from him. He willingly laid it down. Jesus said that over and over. Look, I have authority to, to take it up and I have authority to lay it down. Ain't no one taking his life from me. I am giving my life so that you can have my life. He's inviting people into life. And by doing so, Jesus is inviting us into perfect love. So it's not just like, hey, is he calling us into life or love? It's both. When you have life, you're immersed into the love of God and you have love for people as a result of that life. That's why love and life are so closely connected. Like, my life force, you might say, is the love God has for me. That's what makes salvation possible. That's what makes the gospel what it is. That's what that Jesus. Uh, that's why Jesus comes down and lays his life down. The love of God becomes like a sort of life-giving, animating force for me, an energy of sorts, right? That makes salvation possible. Don't I'm not getting new agey. You know what I mean? The love God has for me becomes so satisfying that Jeremiah will say, "Your love is better than life." I didn't make that up. Jeremiah wrote that. Your love is better than life. Not even your love is life. Your love is better than life. In John 13, we have this spectacular picture of the gospel. And the reason I bring you here is because John has just told us, look, if you're going to love people, you need to know what love looks like. You need to know love personally. So let me show you who love is. Let me show you what he's done for us. And you go, well, I know he, he lived the perfect life and he died in my place and he hung there until it was finished and he was tortured and he fulfilled the law and he took every ounce of sin and punishment upon himself. And then he resurrected after dying, you know, three days later. Cool. Have you ever noticed how the gospel is on full display in this little, little story? This is when Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. Okay? And I really want you to pay attention. This is the epitome of what is about to take place on the cross. He's demonstrating it in a lesser form. In other words, when Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, like in that is a picture of the full message of the gospel. And you go, that's a bit of a stretch, buddy. John 13 verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God. Now pause. Whatever Jesus is about to do, whatever he's about to do, it is because he has all power, all authority, he comes from God into the world as superior than all of us. He's preeminent. He's ultimate, right? He's sovereign. And he comes into our world because Jesus knows 
that he has all power and authority as God in the flesh. Here's how he responds. Because he was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. And taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. I'm going to read it, then I'm going to break it down. Then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet. And he began to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon, good old Peter, shoving his foot in his mouth again. Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't understand now. Afterward, you'll understand. Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus, just a boss, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter, Lord, not my feet only, also my hands and my head. Look how quickly Peter changes. You're not washing me. Okay, if I don't wash you, you don't have a share with me. Hey, could you just wash my whole body while you're at it, Jesus? Jesus said, the one who has bathed doesn't need to wash, except for his feet. But he's completely clean. And you, you are clean. Not every one of you. He knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. When he washed their feet, he put on his outer garments, which by the way, he chose to take off. And he resumed his place. And he said, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me Lord, teacher. You're right. I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, if I've washed your feet, the dirtiest part of you, collecting the most dirt and filth, Interacting with the world the most, your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example that you should do just as I've done to you. Jesus is calling his disciples to love each other the way he loved them. Now you go back. What does it mean that Jesus loved the world or loved his own specifically? Verse 3 right here is a summary statement of what is about to take place. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, he was going to die and resurrect, he had all power and authority to do so, that he came from God and was going back to God. That right there is the gospel. It starts with Jesus coming into our world from God, and then it ends with him going back to God as our high priest. Here's what he does. Here's everything in between. Here's the gospel. He laid aside his outer garments. That sounds a lot like Jesus laying aside, not his divinity, not his godness, but laying aside his glory and his majesty and the worship he's had for all eternity. He lays it aside, takes it off, you might say, for a season, and taking a towel, he ties it around his waist. To me, that sounds like Jesus taking on human flesh. That sounds like Jesus taking on our human nature and actually becoming one of us. Takes off the outer, ties a towel around his waist. And you go, that's a bit of a stretch. Hold on. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The water is what's washing, cleansing, you might say, the filth from the feet, the dirt, that the feet have collected. The water plays a role in cleansing and washing. 
but it, it's it's tied to the towel wiping. In other words, the towel itself absorbs the filth and the dirt. And the water plays a role in the cleansing. If you read Romans chapter 8, if, if we're going to say the towel that Jesus wraps around his waist, if that's representing his human nature, him putting on human form and coming in the world as one of us, that would actually be consistent with Romans 8. It says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin, darkness, filth, evil. He condemned sin in the flesh. Whose flesh? Jesus' flesh. In other words, the, the body of Jesus, the flesh of Jesus, takes on all the filth and the darkness of human evil. Kind of like how this towel right here he's wiping their feet with absorbs all the filth and all the dirt from their feet and has, you know, dipped into the basin and rinsed off. I, I see a picture in this of Jesus laying down his life, going to the cross, taking all sin upon himself, paying it in full, meeting the law in our place, and then dying and rising three days later. And the water he's pouring into the basin seems representative of the cleansing nature of his blood. Just like blood would be poured into the, uh, the altar basin when it comes to animal sacrifices, there'd be a basin that would collect the blood. This, this basin right here, it seems to be symbolic of that kind of an idea. Where the blood of Jesus being poured out is what cleanses and washes and removes the filth from those who trust in him, his disciples, his disciples. And he wipes them with the towel. So in other words, if the towel is the human nature, then it's Jesus cleansing us by his precious blood, right? By the cleansing nature of his spirit. And he's cleaning us off by taking on all the filth on himself, just like the towel takes on the filth. And then here's the last part. Skip the whole Simon Peter thing. When he washed their feet, he put on his outer garments, which sounds a lot like Jesus assuming his place and assuming all the worship and glory and majesty that he laid aside. He takes that on again, not the divine nature. He didn't lay that aside and he resumes his place. That sounds like the ascension. That sounds like Jesus being done, making atonement for the world. That sounds like Jesus finishing his job, making complete uh, atonement for sin, paying our debt so that we can be cleansed and washed by his blood. And now he resumes his place. He resumes his place and ascends to the right hand of the Father to be our mediator and a high priest after making perfect, you know, um, complete atonement for sin. So that's what is beautiful about this is in this, you see a picture of the gospel. You see it. He lays aside his glory, comes down, puts on flesh. That flesh becomes the way in which sin and evil are dealt with in that flesh. And then the blood that is shed, the water that he washes the disciples feet with symbolically, that's what cleanses our soul of all sin. And then he, Ascends to the right hand of the Father, assuming his place. He's done. He's done. 
and then he's going to come back and conquer his enemies. And once all his enemies have been made a footstool for him, you're going to see new creation. You're going to see the people of God reigning with him. But when John says, by this we know love, you, you really need to hear it from his heart. John was there watching the king of glory and the creator of all things wash his feet. And he didn't understand what was happening. Until post-ascension, resurrection, when they have the spirit, then they can look back and go, oh my gosh. Like that was just a small picture of what he really came to do. To live for us, to die for us, to resurrect for us, and to ascend for us. He really laid himself down. That's the kind of love John is calling people to. He's calling us to that kind of love where we actually lay ourselves down. I can't save anyone from sin. I can't cleanse anyone's soul. But I can point you to the one who can. And that's what my life should be doing. That's what it means to love people. If you're really going, give me a clear definition of love. Okay. Make someone else's life better because of your, because you're alive. Be a reason that someone else is closer to Jesus. Use your life as a way to help people move towards Jesus. And we ought to do that for the brothers. Lay down our lives like Jesus does. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Right? There's another statement. When we talked about things abiding in a believer. Well, love abides in a believer. Right? Eternal life abides in the believer. The seed of God abides in a believer. The word of God abides in a believer. The anointing. All these different things that all find their fulfillment in Jesus. He is love. He is eternal life. He is the word of God. He is the true anointed one that gives us his anointing. Right? He is the, the firstborn from the dead, you might say. So, it's really cool. If anyone has the world's good, closes his heart, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. If you claim to love people, and every opportunity God brings your way to practically love someone, you choose not to, do you really love people? I'm not saying like every single opportunity brought your way. I'm not saying you have to handle everyone's needs. I'm not saying you have to be the solution to everyone's problem. We have limited resources, energy, time, love. But when you are presented an opportunity and God says, hey, here's an opportunity to love. And you never, ever take that opportunity to lay your life down for someone. John is saying, does, does the love of God really abide in you? That's a harsh word. James 2 says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and, and one of you says, ah, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Totally just sent them good vibes. Without giving them things that need that are needed for the body, what good is that? Did you do any any good? You sending good vibes, you wishing them well, you saying, I will pray for thou, you have actually practically done nothing to meet their needs when you could have. 
Like God actually placed you in their life to be a solution to their problem. That's why he gave you the resources you have. And you said, nah. And again, I'm not saying it to feed every homeless person you see and tend to every need that's brought your way. There's a way to discern. And if you never, ever, ever are willing to lay down your life to make someone else's life better, you really have to wonder, do I have faith? Do I really believe in the gospel? Because John's saying, look, you, does God's love abide in that person? You close your heart. That's a strong image. It's like your heart can be open to help someone and you shut those doors. Like your doors are wide open to people and then someone actually with a real need starts approaching your door and you go, shut the doors, lock them. Don't let anyone turn on the alarm system, hold the guns and you're never open to helping another. Does God's love abide in that person? I think it's a rhetorical question. Your good vibes did nothing for someone's needs. Your, your good vibes didn't glorify God, however much you think they did. Let's not just love in word or talk. You got a lot of talkers. I love people. I love God. I love the church. Okay, prove it. Not that you have to prove to me anything and not that you have to sustain your own salvation by your works. That's not what I'm saying. But if there's zero evidence throughout your life of love for people, generosity is not present, no hospitality, no mercy, no forgiveness, no giving, no heart that weeps with those who weep. Do, do you really have the love of God abiding in you? John would say you don't because you're just loving in talk and word, but in practice and substance, it's not there. And love is, remember I said love is always going to be consistent with the truth. So I don't just do something and call it love. I do something that matches up with the word of God and the character of God and is motivated by the love God has for me. That right there is a loving action that honors my father. Now we get into this interesting concept of being self-condemned. Put your hand up in the chat if you struggle with a self-condemning heart. In other words, you struggle with a sense of a sense of condemnation. However often that may be, however frequent it is, put your hand up in the chat if you struggle with dealing with condemnation or a sense of shame. Because this is where you really need to listen. Like I'm telling you, if you have not listened at all, this is your chance to really get something out of this. Okay? This is what John says, and I need to take a sip. By the way, my hand's up too. My hand's up too. Not to say I don't trust Jesus. Not to say I don't trust the gospel. It's actually over time as I get closer to God, that sense of shame and condemnation has less power over me. Okay? And, I, and I'm not saying the thoughts ever stop. The, de the deception's always there. It's always going to be present. What do you do with it? This is what John says, and I really hope you listen. I actually can't wait to talk about this in the Discord chat today, so I hope you guys can, can be there. I'll probably actually start reading here when we jump in our, our voice chat. John says, By this we shall know that we're of the truth. By this. By this. And this will reassure our heart before God. That's the hymn. For whenever our heart condemns us, pause. 
John doesn't say if your heart condemns you. John doesn't say if you happen to struggle with self-condemnation and the devil tries to accuse you and cause you to doubt the word of God. He says when your heart condemns you. Or at least tries to. Here's what we know. God is greater than my own heart's self-condemning. My own heart's condemnation of myself. God is greater. He knows everything. There's a lot to unpack here. Like, a lot. Self-condemnation is a very real thing. It's a very real reality for a lot of people. Including myself. If the devil can have your soul, he'll try and rob you of your effectiveness. He'll try and cripple you into a sense of shame that ain't there. He'll try and condemn you with a sin that you continually struggle with. You've been fighting and you fast and you've been getting counsel and you fall into it again after three months. He'll try and condemn you with that into a false sense of condemnation and punishment that isn't there. The question becomes then, what do we do in that moment? Number one. Number one. I'm never confident that I'm saved because of anything I do. My only reason for confidence when I stand before the living God is going to be Jesus. I am, I am confident in what he's done for me. He has lived the perfect life. He has died in my place. He's paid my debt. He's resurrected on my behalf. He's the only reason I have confidence for the day of judgment. There's no other reason. The question then becomes though, how do you know that the work of Jesus has personally benefited you? In other words, how do you know that you truly believe in the message of the gospel? John says, by this. By this, we know that we are of the truth or we are of the Father or we're children of God or we are saved, to use modern terminology. Here's how we know. John says that you love indeed in truth, that the love of God abides in you. That right there is not the only evidence. That right there is not the only real way to know. But he does say, by this we shall know that you are of the truth. Here comes the balance between seeing evidence or fruit in my life, right? And not allowing that evidence to become my source of confidence. John wants you to know that when your heart condemns you, when something needs to reassure our heart of the truth that we're starting to doubt and forget. And John says, when you see evidence of love in your life, a growing love for God and people, a growing love for other believers, a kind of love that you could never manufacture on your own, a love that you can't be educated into by the system, a love that God has to divinely give. When you see that, that begins to be a witness to the faith you have. And so now it's not a question of, did Jesus really do that? It's a question of, do I really believe in him? And if there's love in me for God and people, that is a strong witness. Like the judge would call to the stand, the witness of, of my, my works and say, Hey, do you testify that this man really has faith? Or 
Is it not there? Hopefully my life, and I'm confident that it does, my life will be a witness and a testimony to the fact that I do have genuine faith. So when self-condemnation starts to bleed in, I can go, hold on. I know what Jesus has done for me, like with all my heart. And I know that I personally believe in that because I see the fruit of his character and love in my life. So we are not saying that your works becomes the reason for your confidence. We're not saying that your works becomes the reason that you're really getting into the kingdom. No, it's Jesus alone. But there are a lot of people who are self-deceived and going, I believe in Jesus. And they can quote to you Romans wrote and walk you through the gospel. And they don't even know the living God. There are people like that, like in real life. And they're self-deceived. And there's no fruit in their life. There's no long-term evidence of love or the spirit of God in them. You and I, though, we have to ask ourselves, do we see a life and love that witnesses to the faith I claim to have? Because your heart is going to try and condemn you. Your flesh will try and deceive you. The enemy will try and creep in and get you to believe, yeah, you're, you're still under sin. God's going to penalize you. You're going to hell. God doesn't love you. You don't belong to him. What do you do when that happens? Number one, you look to your father because he's greater than your heart. And you go, why does John bring that up? In what way is God greater than my heart? Your heart doesn't know everything. Think about that. You don't fully and perfectly know yourself the way you think. The way you view yourself, the way you picture yourself, what you think about yourself is not a perfect understanding of who you really are. You and I have a partial view of who we are. We have a view of ourselves. We have a, an understanding of ourselves. And a lot of that is distorted and a misunderstanding. A lot of that is not correct. So, am I going to believe my own heart's false understanding of who I really am? Or am I going to believe what God says about me when he knows everything about me? If my own heart, and we're talking to like that's that part of you, like to not get all weird and be like, don't you have a new heart with Jeremiah and the new covenant? I'm just speaking to that part of you that tries to convince you, you don't really belong to God. That part of you that tries to condemn you and shame you. Does that part of you completely and perfectly understand you as a person no so why would i believe someone's conclusion about me that doesn't even see me perfectly like i, I would rather trust in someone else's conclusion when they really really perfectly know everything about me god knows everything about you and i mean everything the things you don't see, the things you haven't become aware of yet, the things you've chosen to forget on purpose because you're ashamed of them, the things you're going to do in the future that you said you'd never do again, God sees it all. And you know what he's done in spite of all of that? He's made a verdict about you, an, an official, divine, eternal decree. He said, you are my child. You are forgiven, you're holy, you're blameless, you're righteous, 
You're in my son. You're a new creation. He says that about you. Knowing everything about you that you don't even know about yourself. So self-condemnation is always rooted in an incomplete understanding of who I really am. Or an improper understanding of who I really am. So if I can just recalibrate a minute and go, hold on, hold on. I feel a sense of condemnation welling up in me because I did wrong. Or because I didn't respond the way I should have. Or I fell into that sin again. Or this addiction's really crippling me. Condemnation, which by the way, the word condemnation refers to penalty. It means you are penalizing yourself, punishing yourself. When God says, no, 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 no. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. None. Romans 8.1 says there's none. Jesus paid the debt in full. Every ounce of the just penalty and punishment our sin deserved, he took on himself. He handled it in full. There's not an ounce left for you. So for you to punish yourself, when God says there's no more punishment for your sin because Jesus took it all, you're submitting to a false reality. And you're saying, no, there is punishment. God's saying, no, there's not. You're believing a lot. You're punishing yourself when I'm not. So what I need to do is make a pivot and go, hmm, what does God say about me? What has he done for me? And let that inform what I'm thinking about myself in this moment. Because guess what? God knows everything. I don't. So he's greater than our heart. If you go down to 1 John 4, there's a similar statement John's going to make. He's going to say, little children, you are from God. Amen? Amen. And you have overcome them, the world and the spirit of Antichrist. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That sounds very similar to what he just said. That God is greater than my heart. And God actually dwells in us so that we are the living temple. And he in us is greater than he who is in the world, being the spirit of Antichrist, the enemy, the devil, but also anyone who would speak a word against what God says about me. Jesus says this in John 12. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He's talking about the devil. How the enemy, the ruler of this world, is about to be cast out. How? By his death and resurrection. John 14, 30, Jesus says, Look, I'll no longer talk much with you. The ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. That right there is the exact idea John is communicating in chapter 3. When he says, Look, God is greater than your heart. What you think about yourself isn't always completely true or accurate. I need God to tell me who I am. And so when I'm believing this lie of condemnation or shame, I'm choosing not to believe what God says about me, which is the truth. And guess what? The devil, because he has no claim on Jesus, and because you're in Christ through faith, the devil has no claim on you. He doesn't get to declare anything about you. He doesn't make any verdict about you. He has no bearing on what God declares about you. God has declared you are his. And that doesn't change with your performance. That doesn't go up and down based on how well you're doing or how much you're reading your Bible or how much you're not sinning. 
God doesn't change his mind about you. He doesn't love you less because God's love for you and your identity is based on what Christ has done for you. And that doesn't change. And that can't be reversed. And that simply stated can't at all be altered in any capacity. So if my identity and God's love for me is based on the work of Jesus, which can never be altered, then suddenly I have the confidence to face any kind of false sense of condemnation because I can look it in the face and go, oh, you're trying to convince me that God has changed his mind about me. Yeah, I ain't playing that game. But remember, the heart here is brought up here in verse 17. And there's a reason he brings it up. Because if your heart doesn't carry the love of God in any capacity, and your heart is always closed off to people, and never open to helping people, then maybe you don't really know Jesus the way you thought. So while there is this sense of, okay, some people are self-deceived. Some people really don't know Christ and they think they do. There's another sense in which, but there's also so many people that do truly belong to God and they live with this constant shame and condemnation and false sense of God's punishing me. He wants me to go on time out. He doesn't want to be with me. And they live that way when they should be living the opposite way. And the unbeliever who thinks they're saved, having no condemnation, they actually should be aware of the fact that they're under the penalty of sin and they really need to change. And so it's this weird reversal where like the sense of conviction the unbeliever should have, believers are walking around with. And that kind of confidence the believer should have, the unbeliever's walking around with. And you're like, we got to fix that, man. <laughs> we really got to fix that. Something's going on. And so your heart will condemn you. Just know that. Just know that. And so I don't look at my life as a reason for confidence where I go, well, I helped Nancy tomorrow, uh, yesterday, not tomorrow, unless you like jumper. I, uh, I really served the homeless yesterday and as well, you know, last Sunday, I, I really didn't blow up on my mom. And today, like I was really patient toward my wife and, and you see evidence of love. It's not like that is going to be your reason. God's going to let you in the kingdom. So I'm not like looking at all the laundry list of all the good things I've done and going, okay, yes, can't wait to die. I'm going to stand before God and list out all the times I've loved people. No. The only thing you're going to list out is what Christ has done for you. And there's a sense of confidence and reassurance that you truly belong to him and that his work applies to you when you see his love in your life. Otherwise, if there's no evidence of love in your life, condemnation will start to creep in. And maybe it has a right to if you truly don't belong to God. That condemnation is just if you don't belong to God. Let me preface. If you don't belong to God, then condemnation is appropriate. Like it's the consequence of sin. But the minute you come out from that into life, out of death, into Christ, condemnation has gone. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, which very simply, it seems, John seems to be indicating that you and I have a choice. Will I believe what my heart is trying to convince me of? Will I submit to the condemnation my own heart is bringing against me? 
You can either choose to and let it ruin you, or you can stand up on the truth of God's word, look to the cross, and know that your life bears witness to the fact that he really has saved you, and let Jesus be your confidence. If our heart doesn't condemn us, we have confidence before God. Confidence. To do what? John doesn't seem to be just talking about confidence that I'm saved. Look at the confidence he refers to. It's for a specific thing. It's not just, I belong to you and I am a child of God. It's whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. How many of you read this verse and go, no, that's, that doesn't happen in my life. Whatever I ask from God, like he gives me, I don't see that. Either this promise is not true or I'm missing something. Well, what is the condition here? Whatever we ask we receive from God. Pause. Is there possibly a condition attached? There is. Because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. So, oh, okay. So now John is making it sound like as long as I just honor God and obey Him, I can ask for whatever I want and God will give it. You're on the right track, but that's not a completely true statement. Here's why. Terms need to be defined. What's the commandment that John says we need to be keeping if you indeed want to receive everything you ask for? Well, the commandment is this. Watch. Believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Have you done that? You have now officially become a child of God through faith. Okay, that's the first step. You've now entered into the family of God. You are now saved and marked and filled by the Spirit and you're a new creation because you've believed. That is, the, that is the entryway commandment, you might say. How do I enter into the family of God and experience all the blessings He has for His people? Believe in His Son. And we've talked about faith in numerous episodes. And love one another. Now this right here, this loving people, this is not something you do to be saved. This believing is what you do to be saved. This loving is the fruit you'll experience when you are saved. Over time. Just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. So what does it mean to abide? What does it mean to abide? Well, it means you believe and then you follow Jesus in the way of love and you see evidence of his love in your life over the course of your life. And when you believe and when you walk in love like Jesus, you are positioned to receive whatever you ask. So it's this interesting combination of, hey, well, number one, get saved. Number two, Here's how you practically start to see God answer your prayers. Walk in the ways of love. Love one another. 
which is his commandment, which assumes obedience. In other words, John is saying, walk like Jesus walked. Walk in love. Obey the commandments of God. Not to stay saved, not to be saved, not to maintain your standing before God. But if you want to receive or you want God to answer your prayers, it actually requires you to walk in the way of love after you've come to believe. And I know some people have, they struggle with this. Let me take you to another verse that complements this, okay? John fifteen seven. The point of everything I'm about to say is if it's easier to pray God's will when we're already living his will. When John says, whatever you ask for, you'll receive from God. He's not saying that you're changing God's mind to give you what you want. And God's like, you know what? You've obeyed enough. So I'm going to kind of compromise a little bit here and give you what you're asking for. Here's your iPad, buddy. John is saying, you are the one who is changing. Your desires are changing so that you begin to want what God wants to give you. So that your heart begins to beat for the things God actually desires to do in your life. And so this is you changing your desires and heart shift. Your ambitions and pursuits start to align with the word and the will of God. And as you do, right, you start to ask for the things. God's like, yeah, I want to do that in your life. You see it because you're close to me and you're abiding. And you go abiding. What do you mean? This is what Jesus says in the upper room. If you abide in me. And my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish. It will be done for you. So if I abide, which means to continue, to remain, to stay. And his words are continuing to abide in me, which sounds like what the psalmist says. Um, that he stores up the word of God in his heart that he might not sin against God. So this is you believe the gospel. And you're abiding in Jesus. And now daily, you're investing into that relationship. And you're seeking for the word of God to, to be planted in your heart, right? And you're storing up his word in your heart. And as you do, you are going to live out that word and obey God and love people. So ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So it's like there's an equation in mind here. It's like abiding plus praying equals answered prayers. God answers the prayers of those who abide in him because those who abide in him are asking for the right things. And when you abide and start to ask for the right things, it will be the fruit of your abiding, not the reward for how good you are. It's that you have just aligned yourself with what God wants to do in your life. Back to 1 John. There's another scripture that plays, uh, that comes into this. This is the confidence we have toward God. Remember, John brought up confidence in chapter 3. This is the confidence we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Oh, so God only has selective hearing, huh? He's only aware of certain things. This word hearing refers to an active intention to answer and do. It's an action. Sometimes you're listening passively and you're understanding and you're hearing, but it's with, you don't have the intent to act on what you're hearing. God, okay, 
God hears everything. He's aware of everything. He knows everything. But when God listens with the intent to act and answer, that's different. And He listens with the intent to act or answer when we ask according to His will. But do you have the confidence that you're asking for something that's according to His will? That becomes another question. Do you have confidence that what you're asking for is what God actually wants to do in your life? And a lot of people have confidence for the wrong things. Here's how you develop that confidence. Like here's how you become more discerning about whether or not you're asking for something God wills to do in your life. I'm not saying there's a perfect formula, just some, some general wisdom. Delight yourself in the Lord. That's your choice. And that's my choice. We choose what we delight in. We choose what we actively pursue and invest in and value and, and treasure. We delight either in God or He's just one among many things. When you really delight yourself in Him and you treasure and value God and invest into Him and He's your everything, well, He'll give you the desires of your heart. Because as you delight in Him, your heart begins to match up with His. And your heart begins to beat for what His beats for. And then you ask for things that are, you know, the desires of your heart. And God will give you those because you delighted in Him enough to know what He wanted to do for you. And then you see everything else as less than Him. He's, he's the greatest. And that's a perfect place to be. One more verse. John fifteen sixteen. You didn't choose me, Jesus says to the apostles, but I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So bearing fruit and abiding in Jesus seem to be connected to asking and receiving from God. Is that an overstatement? I don't think so. I really don't. I really don't. Because then we go back here. This is his commandment. Believe. Love one another. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So it sounds like the more I obey, the more prayers I'll have answered. Kind of? But it's more this. Again, um, everyone has a will when that they bring to God in prayer. Everyone has a set of desires. Okay. I want to learn how to pray the will of God for me. I want to learn how to pray and ask for the things God intends to give me that are actually good. That will happen when I abide. That will happen when I delight in him. That will happen when I learn his ways and his character and his will and discern through what I'm asking. But also, okay. When I'm already living out the will of God and doing what he said and obeying him and loving one another and abiding in Jesus and bearing good fruit. When I'm living his will, it will become easier to recognize and pray his will. This is just how God has wired it. Not me. Okay. So it is much easier to recognize and pray the will of God when you're already living out the will of God in your life and you're seeing fruit and you're abiding and you're doing what he's told you to love. There's almost like an ideal path, like a sweet spot. 
If you're going to stay on the path of God's love and love Him and love people and obey and bear fruit and abide and walk in the light, the, the requests of your heart and desires will begin to adjust according to the path you're walking on. And so what I want to do is I want to stay long enough on the path of light and close enough to Jesus who is the light that my heart will begin to adjust according to that way of life. Your set of desires and your heart really does follow your life. And it also determines the way that you live at the same time. So if we can learn how to just do what he's told us to, know him, fruit will happen, abiding will take place, and then your request will be answered because you're asking for the right things. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. And again, the commandments here, you can run to Torah, you can go through the Ten Commandments, you can look at all the different laws God has given his people. I'm just saying, he, he defined what the commandment is for us. Believe and love. And you go, well, yes, loving is laid out by the laws of God. And I'd say, sure, I agree. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. How do you know you're abiding in God? How do you know... Um, you're walking in his ways and walking in the light. Well, there has to be clear instruction. Right? I have to know and have a clear view of what it is I'm supposed to be aiming for and doing. And God will abide in him. Okay? This is not saying, hey, uh, pause. I'll say it like this. Hi, Christian. Good to see you, buddy. Bye. Um, the keeping of commandments here refers to a life. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifelong. The majority of my life is spent walking in obedience and keeping the commandments of God as best as I can. And that is proof that oh, I abide in God and God abides in me. This is, a, this is not saying, hey, obey, 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 or you might fall out of salvation or you might lose your salvation. This is, this is, not, this is not even on the grid of John. I don't, I don't believe, I don't see this is even on his mind. This is not maintain and sustain your salvation. This is, hey, if you keep his commandments, um, which is the majority of your life, you abide in God and God abides in you. Just, just abide in him. Just know him. Just seek him. Pursue him. Obey him. Love him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he's given us. And the spirit leads us into the commandments. Leads us into the truth, right? The Spirit enables us to actually have the strength and self-control to keep the commandments of God and to stay close to Him. So there's almost like varying degrees of abiding. You abide in terms of once for all, I'm grafted in Christ and I'm, and I'm connected to the Father through the Son. I'm abiding in Jesus. There's also that dimension of daily choosing to stay close to Him in terms of walking in his ways and doing what honors him. And that doesn't change uh, my eternal status or my standing in the sight of God. That just begins to bear fruit and be a witness to whether or not I have been grafted into Christ or not. And here's how you know God abides in you. Well, you'll see evidence of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will make himself known. And we'll see in the next session whatever you want to call this, how to discern between the Spirit of God and false spirits, antichrist, demonic spirits, unclean spirits. How do you discern through that? We'll check that out next time, all right? But for now, 
go with me to AboveReproachMinistry.com and you'll find everything you need for your life. <laughs> but we seriously, we are um, an online ministry. We have a ton of free resources that are made possible because of generous supporters like you. We have free devotional studies, free online Bible study courses. If you want to develop your Bible study skills, we have free Bible study worksheets we release every month. We have Bible study workshops. All these sermons are organized topically on YouTube. Um, we have an online church through the Discord app. Uh, we're going to jump into a voice chat after this, talk through the scriptures a bit together and pray. Um, and we also have a book. It's called Fruitful. You can get your copy here or on Amazon. I give you the essential keys to living the most abundant, satisfying Christian life this side of heaven. Um, you can also support this ministry by giving uh, to all, again, all this content is completely free to everyone around the world. And it's only possible because of generous supporters like you guys. You might say we're crowdfunded or God-funded. Um, I have a wife and two kids to care for, so this is my full-time job to support them. And all this content and all the stuff we do is completely free um, to anyone. So it really depends on who gives, whether or not we're, we keep going. <laughs> so thank you for those of you that help us to keep going. If God ever decides to shut this down, he'll make it clear. But if you want to donate, you can give right here on the donate page through debit or credit card. You can give through PayPal. You can give through Cash App or Venmo. You can become a monthly supporter through uh, Patreon. And then you get exclusive access to my sermon notes, uh, the notes I use for these messages. You get discount codes on our church merch, our Above Reproach apparel. Um, you get a free copy of my book, physically or digitally, based on the tier you sign up with. And you can sign up for as low as $4 a month, I think, and then as high as $50 a month. Every time you get a shirt or a sweatshirt, you get to represent Jesus on your body. And it makes this content possible. So thank you guys that support this ministry and make all this possible. I love you guys. Keep moving towards Jesus. And I'll see you guys later. Jump in the Discord app. Join our online church while you can. Bye.